we're dealing with not just in general the making of a minister, but your role in it. And as you're going to find out today, you have a big part in that. Uh, because part of the work of the church is, as you're going to learn today, to both recognize and confirm the graces and the gifts for the office of a minister. It's a, if you want the technical term, it's called the general office of the believer working together in the call of men to the ministry. You'll see how important that is as we go through this. But, but what we've covered before is this, and this is not David Rio specific. This is as we pray for ministers, as God willing, we have other interns here, uh, as we hear about these kinds of things done within our presbytery and so on. What are the elements in, in the making of a minister? Well, what we've covered so far are basically railroad cars, okay? And the locomotive in the railroad car is called desire. If a man desires the office of an overseer, of an elder, whether it be ruling elder or minister, as we call it in our circles, he desires a good work. And that desire has to pull all the other cars along. And even a man in the ministry will increasingly desire that work with more understanding because if the desire goes, the devotion will go as well. So that's why it's the locomotive. Then we've had some freight cars in here. Uh, what else is necessary in the making of a minister? Well, graces. First Timothy chapter 3, the elder, whether the one like a John Vaith or a Jimmy Brewer who rules, or like a Pastor Shishko who both rules and teaches, the elders have to have certain qualifications. They must be without reproach. They must be hospitable. They must not be argumentative. They must be, if they're married, a one-wife husband. If they're not married, they're not a playboy, those kinds of things. And we went through those things, those graces. And remember, they're not optional, folks. Jesus said you must be born again. Well, that's not optional. It's required. The Apostle Paul says the elder must have, and so these are requirements that are there. So, so you have desire, you have graces, but there's three other freight cars, and they're all with the title of gifts. And one of those cars and gifts is the gift of the ability to think. If you're going to cut a straight path through the Word of God, if you are going to be reasoning with people, if you're going to be seeking to convince people, then a man must have mental gifts for the ministry. And what seminary is, and, and don't get me wrong from last week, there's various ways men can prepare to rightly divide the word of truth. I think probably the best one and the most common one is what we call a seminary, where men are devoted to these things. But the point is, men have to have mental gifts they have to have an understanding of the scriptures, the scriptures as a whole, the scriptures in their topics, the scriptures in their development, some knowledge of church history, certainly the language. We covered all that, okay? So mental gifts. There must be gifts of leadership. If the elder who has the qualifications of, it must have the qualification of leading or managing his household because he says if he doesn't know how to rule or lead his own house, how can he lead the church of God? Which means that leadership skills are part of what it is to be a ruling elder or a minister. And we looked a little bit into the language for that in the scriptures. It's always, though, the leadership of a servant. And then the third one is the gifts of vocal communication. You say, well, where do you get that from the scriptures? Well, what's a minister called to do? 
He's called to preach. He's called to teach. He's, he's called to reason with people. He's called to counsel people. He's called to declare. He's called to proclaim. Those are words, brothers and sisters. You don't do that by a ballet dance. You do it by, by speaking. And so there's got to be gifts of vocal communication. And Craig McCluskey, who's been our brother from Moriarty, New Mexico, who's been following the series, um, whose prayers, incidentally, are wonderful at the Zoom prayer meeting. But uh, Brother Craig sent me a quotation. I have to read this to you, not only because of how it bears on vocal communication, but it gives you a window on on the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon ministered in, in the 19th century England from basically the mid-1800s to the latter of the 1800s, and he had a, a, a Spurgeon's uh, college where he trained, he did pa basically pastoral theology for men preparing for the ministry. And in his lectures to my students, um, he has this regarding what we called last week gifts of vocal communication and just have a good laugh with Pastor Spurgeon. He says to his students, whatever you may know, you cannot be truly efficient ministers if you are not apt to teach. You know ministers who have mistaken their calling, calling and evidently have no gifts for it. Make sure that none think the same of you. There are brethren in the ministry whose speech is intolerable. Either they rouse you to wrath or else they send you to sleep. No, and he uses the word for that day, we would say no anesthetic can ever equal some discourses in sleep-giving properties. No human being, unless gifted with infinite patience, could long endure to listen to him. And nature does well to give the victim deliverance through speech, through sleep. I heard one say the other day that a certain preacher had no more gifts for the ministry than an oyster. And in my judgment, this was a slander on the oyster. Now this is, this is Spurgeon and the way he observed nature and why he could illustrate so well. For that worthy bivalve, the oyster, shows great discretion in his openings, and he knows when to close. If some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them, and they would soon cry out with Cain, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Let us not fall under the same condemnation. <laughs> and so Spurgeon puts so well what, frankly, we've all in one way or the other experienced, right? Either those that can drive you crazy to wrath because of the way they speak, or you're asleep so you don't even hear them speak. So anyway, those are, that's a little humorous note on the gifts of, of vocal communication. Now, those are the cars, okay? So you've got the locomotive of desire. You have uh, really what is the big freight car of the graces. You have the three box cars of the gifts of mental gifts, uh, gifts of vocal communication, gifts of leadership. Now, um, let's imagine that there's two tracks on, on this. It's actually one, but, but just for our purposes, let's think of the two tracks on which all of these things run from beginning to end. Those two tracks would be called external recognition and confirmation. External because this is not the person's internal call to the ministry. I desire the ministry. 
It's you and your role external to the minister in both recognizing and confirming those gifts. And the scriptures don't say a lot about this. What they do say is very, very illuminating, and we're going to look at those two texts in just a moment. But this, folks, is where you come in, okay? You are now specifically with respect to David Rios and God willing with others down the line, you're going to be involved in the work of externally recognizing or not or confirming or not this man's gifts and calling to the ministry. So there's the introduction. So first of all, two things necessary for a biblically complete, and these language words very important, two things necessary for a biblically complete and valid call to the Christian ministry. Two things necessary for a biblical... I hope you're taking some notes, because you're part of this, folks. Two things necessary for a biblically complete and valid call to the Christian ministry. One, sober self-assessment. The word sober is used... What a word for our culture. It means having two feet on the ground. Not being given to fads in the way you think. Being clearly analytical and careful in what you think. And that sober self-assessment. Now, this, this is where two texts, two of the four texts we're going to look at come in. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Romans, and use your pew Bibles, and I'll give you the page number in just a moment. Romans 12 and verse 3, which is page 1,126. Paul has, in, in chapters 1 through 11, he gives you the grand scope of God's work in the world. This God who made the world is the God who oversaw and even decreed the fall of the world into sin. But that is so that the glory of his mercy might be shown in the salvation of his people, both Gentiles and Jews. That's the, that's the panorama of Romans 1 through 11. And then the Apostle Paul distills all of this in the passage that many of you have memorized, where he says, I appeal to you by these mercies. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might, literally, that you might find out by testing that God's will is good and, and pleasing. So, so that's, that's the distillation of what he says. Now notice what he says next under the inspiration of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, this is not just a man aspiring to the ministry, but to all of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, by measure of faith here, he means an understanding of, in this case, your gifts and your particular gifts here in light of the Word of God. What does God's Word say about these gifts? And sober self-assessment is thinking of himself with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, now, let me give you an example. While, while being a plumber is not a spiritual gift in that sense, although it's used for good purposes, um, it, it, let's say 
I, I used the, the illustration last week of electricity, but even plumbing. If I, if I said to myself, you know, I'm a plumber, and I'm a really good plumber, and there's not a plumbing problem I can't tackle, and I will tackle it. I guarantee you, your house would be flooded within three hours after I did the work. I'm not, for various reasons, gifted in that way of thinking or, or even in the skills to do those things. I may have cultivated them when I was younger, but I didn't, and it's just not the way I'm wired. Now, that's sober self-assessment. And it's the same thing with you as you assess your gifts. Some do have gifts in words, and they can speak. And, and, and in the ladies' case, working with children, with younger women. And in the men's case, perhaps teaching in church or others. But you have those abilities. Sober self-assessment. Do I, do I have... Uh, the, the gift and the desire for hospitality, you ought to cultivate that. How do I do that? There are some people, they are all thumbs when it comes to cooking a meal, males and females. Well, they need to do hospitality by buying food out or whatever, but you assess your gifts as God has given you a measure of faith. What does God say about how those gifts are to be used, and do I have them or not? Can I cultivate them or not? All right. So in the case of a minister... Sober self-assessment. I have the desire. I believe the graces are here. I believe I can communicate. I believe that I can reasonably well understand things. And I believe God has given at least uh, the, the, raw, the raw material of leadership. Okay, So that, that's, that's sober self-assessment. The second text in that regard, which also deals with all of you, is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, and that's page 1,206 in your Bibles. As each, 1,206, 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, doesn't mean you only have one, but as you've received gifts from the Lord, okay? Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whatever else gifts are, they're meant so that you serve others, so that you, with your own clothing on, you are clothing Christ, the great servant, in yourself. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. There's got to be that seriousness about what you do. That's why, brothers and sisters, there's a place for humor, okay? But flippancy in the pulpit, folks, you can't be a prophet and a clown at the same time. Amen. And that's the point that's being made here. You're speaking the word of God. Amen. You are on hallowed ground. And he may not be the best preacher in the world, but at least you know this man has a reverence for what God says. He who speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And it's not ultimately us and our gifts. It's Christ who gives them. What's he saying here? Well, how, how has God gifted you to serve other people? Now, I'll give you an example that, that you're all, you should be aware of it if you're not. Our building and grounds uh, supervisor, Anthony, 
This man has a burden to serve using this property. And God's given him that variety of gifts to do those things. I don't have those gifts. He does. But that's with sober self-assessment, but also the assessment of others. But that's the idea. Ask yourself, how has God gifted me to serve others? Cooking meals, cleaning a house, watching children to help somebody out if they're single parents or they've got some little ones, or perhaps helping in a food pantry or serving on a short-term mission project. What would it be? Sober self-assessment, okay? Now, that's, that, that's really not even the main burden of the sermon. That's pretty much what we've covered so far. Here's the second one. Two things necessary for a biblically complete and valid call to the Christian ministry. Here's the second. And I'll show you, I'll tell you very graphically how this is flaunted, okay? But, but here it is. Assessment of a cross-section of spiritually-minded people. In other words, they think, they're trying to think God's thoughts after him. Spiritually-minded is not their minds are up here, but their minds are, are dominated by, filled with, and actually liberated by the Holy Spirit. Assessment of a cross-section of spiritually-minded people and proven leaders in Christ's church. You are spiritually-minded people, I trust, and there are leaders in Christ's church. That's the second thing necessary for a biblically complete and valid call to the Christian ministry, the assessment of a cross-section of spiritually-minded people and proven leaders in Christ's church. Why is this so important? We, brothers and sisters, live in a day not just of individualism, not just of crass individualism, but it's crass individualism on steroids. I heard this week of the brother of one of our members who's considering, I hope he doesn't consider it for long, but a school farther upstate in New York for his child. And he finds out that in that school they have respect for the way you self-identify. And there was a child that came in and he or she self-identified as a furry. I don't know what a furry is, but I assume it's some kind of an animal. But because he self-identified as a furry, he had to have, or she had to have, or it had to have, a litter box in the bathroom. And that had to be honored. Thankfully, the janitor said they weren't going to clean the litter box. That's crass individualism on steroids. And you know as well as I do, that is what is destroying, in so many ways, our culture. Although I think, finally, people are waking up to the insanity of it. Now, here's how this comes in church life. And if I had $5 for every time this happened in Franklin Square, I could at least take you down to the 7-Eleven to get you something, all of you in here. Sunday night, we're done worship. One or two people have come in, they've maybe come in for the service or at the very end, and they want to speak to the pastor, which is me. Pastor, my name is so-and-so, my name is so-and-so, we're ambassadors for Christ. Um, and we, were, we would like the opportunity to speak in this church. So, you know, Orthodox Presbyterians, especially this one, I said, well, let me ask a question. 
who, who, ambassadors are commissioned. Who commissioned you to be an ambassador? Jesus did. How did Jesus do it? By then they were a little bit uneasy. They said, well, well, Jesus did it. He spoke to us. He did? He spoke to you about that in the scriptures. He told you in the scriptures that you're an ambassador for Christ. Well, no, no, no. He just told us. How did he tell you that? Well, then you realize you're not getting very far. What church body sent you out? We don't need to be sent out by a church body. We're sent out by Jesus. Have you read in the scriptures that Jesus builds a church and that he gives the keys of his kingdom to a church? Yes, but you don't need to be part of a church. We're part of Jesus. Uh, needless to say, we wouldn't inflict these self-imposed ambassadors on anyone. Could you imagine if I go to Russia and I say, I want you to know I am an ambassador of the United States of America and I'm here to represent them. Vladimir Putin would have every right to say, excuse me, who commissioned you? And if I say, well, I just, you know, I just had this great burden in my heart to be an ambassador, he'd throw me out. Now, folks, that's what I mean. And this ravages Christianity, so-called, in our culture. And it has to be dealt with firmly because what that does is it makes a deity of the individual rather than God. How do you know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has made you an ambassador? He's, he's, you get the point? All right, now, why do you say it? So, what's the alternative to that? There has to be, there has to be an assessment of a cross-section of spiritually-minded people and proven leaders in Christ's church. You say, now, where do you get that in the scriptures? I, I find these two examples put together to be absolutely fascinating. And remember, when the scriptures give examples, God chooses those examples to put in the scriptures for our instruction. They're there for a purpose, all all history books in the Bible is pretty much a history book. All history books have purposely selected data put in for you to read. God has purposely selected data for you to read about what's involved in the external recognition and confirmation of a man for the ministry. So let's look at the text. Turn to Acts chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2. Acts chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2. Now that is page 1090, 1098, 1099 in your scriptures. Now remember, who's Timothy? Okay. Timothy is the model of what we would know of as a seminarian. He comes under the tutelage of the best seminary professor next to Jesus himself, who is the Apostle Paul. And he is, we'll learn about this in a moment, God has prepared a place for this man to serve in time. But how did the Apostle Paul know that this Timothy should be in Pauline seminary? Acts 16 and verses 1 and 2. Paul comes to Derby and to Lystra. These were parts of what Asia Minor, what we would know of today as modern Turkey. A disciple, he's a follower of Christ, 
a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So it didn't make any difference. He didn't come from a home where both were believers, at least his mom was. But this was Timothy. He's a disciple. He's a follower of Christ. Whatever else a Christian is to be, disciple, follower of Jesus. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. In other words, beyond Lystra and Derby, at least in Iconium, which was in that area, this guy had a testimony. Within a range of maybe 40 or 50 miles, this disciple Timothy had been present enough that people had seen him, external recognition. And they thought very highly of this man. Now, it doesn't say why he was well-spoken of. It doesn't say he had mental gifts, vocal communication gifts, or whatever. But well-spoken meant at least he had graces that were there as a disciple. He was well-spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Why? God's setting his plan for preparing ministers to work. Those things, Paul, that you learned, you commit them to faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. And Timothy was not only the first of these, he's the model for it. First and second Timothy, Paul writes to the minister. What do you see? A cross-section of, we assume, spiritually-minded people, their brothers and sisters would be included in that, and they speak well of this guy. He is, we can imagine, this Timothy. He is kind. He is gentle. He also stands for truth. He clearly loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives himself for our good. When we see Timothy, we really see Christ represented in him, well spoken of, externally recognized. This, is, this isn't Timothy. Could you imagine Timothy if he went up to Paul and said, Paul, you need to take me along with you because I am called as an ambassador of Christ. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would say to that. <laughs> Frankly, it didn't make any difference what Timothy thought. Timothy was well spoken of. We assume desire would come. And Paul says, I want him to be my first seminarian. Okay, So that's external recognition by a broad cross-section of spiritually-minded people and church leaders. Where do you get that? Fascinating. Turn again in your Bibles, and then we'll start spinning out what this looks like in practice, to Galatians 2 and verse 8. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 8. So you're moving ahead in your Bibles. Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd, Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians, which is part of Asia Minor. Galatians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, page 1000. 155. Now, here's an example of where Christ has commissioned an individual. He has stopped in Paul in his tracks. He has told Paul he is going to be a minister to the Gentiles. And either right before this or right after it, Paul's going to get his seminary training being taken up to the third heaven 
where Jesus himself would be his professor, and there ain't no seminary that is as good as that one. But whether it was right before that or right after that, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and in verses 8 and 9 presents himself to the other apostles. He says in verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, another name for Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now here's Paul. Paul comes and says, "Uh, I'm going to be an ambassador for Christ. How do you know that? Well, because Christ spoke to me. Christ stopped me in my tracks. One of the great proofs, if you will, of, of the truth of the resurrected Christ is that Saul, who was on the fast track to be the leader of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, is stopped in his tracks in the midst of persecuting Christians, is converted, and is going to become an apostle to the Gentiles. And Jesus gives him that commission. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And so the apostle Paul goes to these apostles in Jerusalem after 14 years. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, so probably he'd had his, his time of learning from the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're skeptical. This guy who persecuted Christians is claiming he wants to be an apostle? Now we don't know what happened in here, but before Paul and Barnabas actually go out on their missionary journey, at least these three of the apostles see, and probably hear as well, that Jesus had entrusted them with this commission. Now, we don't know how that worked about, but what we're seeing here is external recognition and confirmation of a call Jesus had given to these people. And that's quite fascinating, because in one case, Jesus didn't speak to Timothy about this. It was kind of the ongoing course of life. In the other case, Jesus had spoken directly to them, as he was wont to do then. And still, there needed to be external recognition and confirmation. So, there's, those are my two things necessary for a biblically complete and valid call to the Christian ministry. Now, this brings us to the specifics, but it's all under the rubric of what I call baseline Presbyterianism. It's actually basic, baseline biblical Christianity. Nobody in the Christian church is independent. Everybody in the Christian church is meant to be submissive to one another. Be submissive, husbands love your wives, Wives, uh, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, but he begins that by saying, yea, all of you be submissive one to another. I mean, Peter says, likewise, you younger, be submissive to the elder, probably the elders of the church, be submissive one to another. 
Uh, we're called in the scriptures not only to that, we're called to listen to one another in wise counsel. You wage war and ordaining people to the ministry is well, it's ordaining troops for battle, right? In a multitude of counselors, there's safety. In a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. Uh, independency, the one who isolates himself. That's independency. Seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound wisdom. And this is why independency is always destined to fail. All right, so, so the baseline Presbyterianism, then, in all of these things, is we function together. We listen to one another. And we, we seek counsel from one another. We don't isolate ourselves from one another. And, and uh, now, with that in mind, how does that work itself out in the external recognition and confirmation of a minister? Well, let's, let me give you the path. I'll put it this way. The path of this for an OPC Timothy. I really don't want David to be the focus of all of this because it's really a principle way beyond an intern. But let, let's think of this, uh, this OPC Timothy. We have a Timothy conference for young men that are interested in the ministry. So let, let's think of, a, of an OPC Timothy and how he is externally recognized and confirmed. And, and this is, these are our house rules. We have a book of church order that we follow because we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. We're not saying everybody needs to do it the way we do, um, and sometimes we're not even sure about how we're supposed to do it, but, but the point is we have a way in which we do it, our house rules. How do those house rules that we submit to apply to the recognizing and confirming of this locomotive and the freight car and the boxcars we've talked about? Well, cross-section of spiritually-minded people. A young man in a, in a church. Timothy's his name. And uh, not only does Timothy really, really love the Lord, Timothy has got a real passion for just telling others about Jesus and teaching the Word of God. This is what he, he really wants to do. And he's somewhat hesitant to say it because Timothy realizes that this is a big, big responsibility and he wants to have sober self-assessment. Spiritually-minded people say, uh, Timothy, have you ever thought about the ministry? Have you ever thought about being a pastor or an evangelist or a teacher? We'll get to that in a bit. And God is sovereign over those things. And Timothy begins to process that. And at some point, as Timothy gets a bit older, Timothy meets with, either meets with a session with the elders or they ask to meet with him. And the session, the elders bring up to him and say, Timothy, we've heard from a number of people in the church, and we've seen this ourselves. You really, it seems like the Lord has given you the raw material for the ministry. Have you thought about the ministry? And Timothy says, well, I hadn't. Uh, but when different spiritually-minded people had mentioned this to me, I did think about it. And, and I, think, I, I think I really do desire the ministry. I don't know all that that's involved, but I've seen here in this reasonably healthy church something of what the ministry is. And, and I know something of its pain and something of its blessing, something of its demands, something of the benefits. And yeah, I, I, really, I, I really think I'd like to be a minister. 
external recognition and confirmation on the local level, just like Timothy's. Now here's what gets different, because the church is more developed, and this is Orthodox Presbyterian Timothy. This is the way we do it in our house rules. The session sends a report to the presbytery, which is a regional group of ministers and elders. Why do you have that? Well, the scriptures speak of the church in Jerusalem and Judea in a certain region. So we'll sometimes use the phrase regional church. There's a church local, there's a church regional, there's a church national. So we're talking about Presbytery of Connecticut and Southern New York, for example. And a letter is sent by the session to the, the, the presbytery, and it's directed by the conscientious clerk to the candidates and credentials committee that works with ministers. And it says basically this. We're requesting that Timothy be taken under care of the presbytery. We have seen in him, they may not put it quite like this, the raw material of gifts for the ministry, and we definitely see the graces, and he is increasingly desiring that. Presbytery meets. Timothy meets with Presbytery. And he is examined by a broader cross-section of not only spiritually-minded people, but hopefully spiritually-minded church leaders. And Timothy tells the Presbytery, which is quite a bold thing in itself, that he, he really does desire the Christian ministry. He thinks he'd like to be a pastor, but he's not sure if it would be an evangelist or a teacher. And he really does desire to go to seminary. He wants to develop his gifts. He's enjoyed his studies of the scriptures. But he wants really more than that. He wants to learn the languages. But more importantly, he really has those graces that Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy. And he will be asked about those things. Be honest with your brothers here. You struggle with pornography? You struggle with drugs? You struggle with alcohol. You love your wife. You're faithful to your wife. If we had your wife in here, what would she say about your management of the household? This is serious business. And the man may say, I confess, none of these is a life-besetting sin. I still struggle with these things. I want to work on them. But by God's grace, I have some victory in that. I want it to continue. But you see that this man really wants to be a follower of Christ and walk in obedience, and he's taken under care of presbytery, which means what? As he now begins his formal studies in seminary, he is going to be worked with by especially church leaders. He's under care of presbytery, goes to Westminster Seminary or Greenville Seminary or Reformed Seminary or whatever, and the Candidates and Credentials Committee keeps contact with him, uh, and he, he's part of another local church in a different area, and other cross-sections of God's people are examining Timothy for the ministry, and he has already had the raw material of his desire, of his graces, and his gifts demonstrated now let's see what happens in seminary. And the process continues. It's a track on which all of these go. And he grows in grace. And he grows in knowledge. And he grows in communication skills. And he grows in leadership skills. And God in his providence gives opportunities in perhaps an internship program or a service in the church or things that are done in the seminary and a broader cross-section of individuals see Timothy and say, this is a man that's got some leadership. 
This is a man who really has abilities to teach the Word of God and the homiletics professor, preaching professor says, and he's growing as a preacher. And he's doing well in seminary. And his family life, even with the challenges, is beginning to flourish even more. And you're seeing the formation of what the scriptures call a man of God. External recognition, not yet confirmation. Okay? You see the gifts? Desire, graces, gifts, mental, vocal, leadership. Those are observed by people, by their Timothy is being observed wherever he is. Timothy is going to be called to preach and teach. And you've heard, as Titus has been read to you over these three weeks, how frequently Paul uses the language of sound doctrine. I cannot overstate this. Sound doctrine will further the health of your soul and even in the wake of it, your body. But that's a whole other story. Sound teaching will make you healthy as a human being and as God's child. You know what unsound teaching does? Just the opposite. It'll ultimately destroy you. I'm, I'm flabbergasted when people are parts of churches and you say, well, what, what does the church believe? I don't know. Well, why do you go to the church? I love, I love the music. What's taught in the music? What's taught in the pulpit? Am I pushing the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? No, I'm not. I'm pushing what the scriptures say, sound doctrine over against unsound doctrine. And so is this man's gifts for mental communication and, and vocal communication are being developed. The next stage for us in our house rules is what's called licensure, where a man, man is not to fill the pulpit regularly. He'll exhort, but he's not to fulfill the pulpit regularly as one proclaiming officially. Proclamation is Christ, the great herald, has commissioned someone to proclaim his word to others, and we take that really seriously. And so in licensure, it's not so much graces and desire that's emphasized. Does this man know how to interpret the scriptures? Does he know what they're about? Does he know the doctrines of the scriptures? Does he know how to present them properly? Does he know something about the history of the Christian church? Has he learned a little bit about what it is to defend the faith? Those are, those are gifts of a sanctified mind, and that man is examined in what we call the process of licensure. And those exams can be really, really rough because you don't entrust the proclamation of the gospel to, as the scriptures call it, unworthy men. And people may not like that, but if they don't like that and they don't care about that, they really don't care about themselves. So there's examinations that come in licensure, and, and traditionally there are examinations in English Bible, 
examinations in many of the heads of theology. There's a Greek exam, there's a Hebrew exam, there's a church history exam, there's an apologetics exam, and I'm forgetting what else are in there, but you get the idea of what it is, so that the presbytery sees that the man not only, not only has some understanding of these things, but he can communicate them, and then he has to exhort for the presbytery. And hopefully, if that man exhorts the way Pastor Spurgeon is described in exhorter, presbytery won't approve him to be licensed. Hopefully, they at least see the raw material. And you've got a broad cross-section of church leaders, and they say, now we see that, that this man not only has the desire, has the graces, has the gifts, sanctified mind, also vocal communication, and others have testified they've seen, they've seen leadership. See the railroad tracks? We're going on. So what after he's licensed? Usually has more time to do at seminary. Traditionally, seminary was three years, two years, and you were licensed, and then you had another year. But what do you do in that other year? External recognition and confirmation. What's confirmation? There has to be a body that sees in that man what a, another cross-section of individuals and leaders has seen with this added part. We want those graces and those gifts and that desire to be running on the tracks of this local church or of this school or of this Christian publication. You have three types of ministers. You have pastors who are called, as Pastor Silver was installed, we'll talk about that some other time, but he's installed as, as pastor of Bohemia, and it's his focus of his ministry. He's a shepherd of that flock. Dr. David Innes was called as a teacher by the church to teach at the King's College and also to teach at Trinity Church. He did preach, but he was primarily a teacher. And then there are others, like Pastor Gerber now, who's called as an, well, he's retired, but an evangelist. There isn't have responsibility for a particular church, but, but he, he has the responsibility of bringing the gospel to many different areas. When I was a regional home missionary, I was called as an evangelist. And those aren't, those aren't cast in stone. You, you can, I think, can find, I think, in Scripture the, the concepts of each. But the point is, they're all ministers of the Word of God who have a desire, they have graces, they have mental gifts, they have gifts of vocal communication, they have gifts of leadership, but they are channeled in one of those three different ways. Now let's just imagine that Minister Timothy, OPC minister in training Timothy, really wants to be a pastor. After Minister Timothy is licensed, Minister Timothy is asked to speak in different churches one in the south, one in the north, one in the northeast, rural area, urban area, primarily minority area, whatever it would be. And he preaches in those churches. He wants to be a pastor. Mutual submission. Those church leaders trust that Timothy's presbytery has done its work with recognition by a broad cross-section of individuals and Christian leaders. They trust they've done that. Do we want Minister Timothy's or, or Minister-in-Training Timothy's gifts 
to be used here? And that's often not an easy question to answer. When we work with interns in Franklin Square, we learn very quickly that different men function better in different areas. I could put names to these, but I won't. One of our, minute, one of our interns, much loved by the congregation, much loved by me, all of our interns were, very much a West Coast guy. He was very much a, a California guy. He has ministered in California since he was called there, and that's got to go back, wow, over 30 years. But God used him in that area. We saw that he was kind of wired for that. It wasn't a question of gifts or graces, but where should they be used? Another very much loved in Franklin Square. Single fellow, very much loved by our single women. <laughs> and it would have been wonderful in our area, but he was Southern. And we realized he had an understanding of the Southern culture uh, that, was, that was just part of his makeup. He's ministered in the South since his internship, and God has abundantly blessed that ministry. Now, that's part of confirmation. You're not so much recognizing gifts, but you're making some kind of decision as to where those gifts should be used. And, of course, you've got a church that wants to call this man. We want this man to be here as our pastor. We have done a sober self-assessment as a church and what we need. He's done a sober self-assessment of what, if I could put it this way, he has to offer. You've done a sober self-assessment of what you think he's made of and all these other things. And as we put them together and we've actually met this man and we met his family, we want him here. That's confirmation. And Jesus is in back of all of that. Because ultimately, it's Christ who forms a man for the ministry and has him called. It's kind of like Esther, right? God is in back of everything, though he's not mentioned. Jesus is in back of all of these things because Jesus is with his church. Cute little story on this. From the little-known annals of history about Pastor Shishko. I've quipped to people at points that sometimes I think I was born with the wrong skin color, which obviously would violate our view of God's sovereignty, uh, because we do, if Margaret and I have always had a, a tremendous affinity for our, our black brothers and sisters, and this is not the black victim idea or anything like that. We just There's something about the piety, there's something about the, the, uh, the, the down-to-earthness of it and so on that just has made us love, in a special way, our black brothers and sisters. The first church that was interested in me being its pastor was an all-black church in Concord, North Carolina. I was part of the presbytery down there. And I remember preaching there and getting to know the people, and we fell in love with the congregation. And this is quite remarkable. You got an all-black congregation, and they got this white guy that's their candidate and they really wanted him to be their pastor. And he, meaning me, I, really wanted to go there. Presbytery said, Bill, we know a lot of things about this congregation, and we know a lot of things about young ministers. That would not be a wise fit. Mutual submission external recognition and confirmation, or in this case, non-confirmation. And they were absolutely right. 
The church didn't so much need a black minister, they did get a white minister. They needed an older man who could help this congregation work through issues that a younger guy, whether white or black, didn't have that as experience. That's what we mean by confirmation or non-confirmation. In another case, that man was asked, called to serve as a church planter in the low country of South Carolina because he had gifts for organization, he had a passion for working with people evangelistically, preparing them to profess their faith. He enjoyed catechism and so on. All that was needed in that area and that's where Pastor Shishko became a pastor. It was confirmation of those gifts for that area. Now later that would change after those duties were done. But you get the point. And Jesus is in back of all of that. Once that's confirmed, then there is a call from the church or from a school or whatever, but the church administers this. And there's another examination. There's an ordination examination, which isn't quite as rigorous as licensure, but there's some things that men usually don't get until the very end of their training in seminary, and you kind of finish that off, and you do a little bit more with leadership and with, uh, with preaching skills and so on. But there's an ordination exam. Again, recognition, recognition, in the context now of the confirmation of his gifts by a body, and even that's not the end. The end is something called ordination. You're called, Presbytery approves the call, submission to your brethren, and you have what we didn't have last night, but God willing, we will have at some point with an intern here, where there's an ordination service, and that is the crowning recognition that a man is called to the ministry. It's got to be one of the most sober and exciting times in church life because when it's done right, you're saying at this point we're making an official statement. Christ has not only gifted this man and given this man a desire for the ministry and formed him with the graces of a man of God, but he's formed him to serve in this church and then he's ordained. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. The crowning is the crowning statement of a man being called to the ministry. And um, uh, there, there's something called laying on of hands. I'm going to deal with it here. It's interesting. You see it in the scriptures. Deacons laying on of hands. There's a laying on of hands when Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and so on. And what that means is there you have a body of, of elders and deacons, uh, of elders and ministers, and, and it is a, there's not magic, it's a symbolic conveying that that ministerial or ruling role that, these, that this body has is now passed on to as well this individual. That, and it really has, it has roots in the Old Testament with Moses and Joshua. It's very interesting as Joshua takes Moses' place. He is ordained and even commissioned is the word. And, and he is, there's laying on of hands. So that's, that's what that means. You always have to explain it to the children. Because when children watch an ordination service, I can imagine Hannah and Elise, they'll be a little bit older, and they see this bunch of big burly men. They're surrounding their daddy and assuming that there's 
external confirmation as well as recognition. And, and, and they're putting their hands on him. And the poor kids are scared to death. Is daddy going to come out of this alive? <laughs> but, uh, but hopefully there'll be some explanation. But you see the point. That's the culmination of what had its beginning by the work of Christ. And this individual who, for one reason or another, says, you know, I really think I want to be in the ministry. And those, that locomotive and those cars and those rails doesn't have to be done the way we do it. But something like it needs to be done for all the biblical data about the making of a minister is completed. And there's two other things that come. Fasting is a day of, usually a day of prayer and fasting when a man is ordained. And the scriptures speak of that. It doesn't speak of the other, but you can still do it. Pastor Miller referred to it last night. A time of celebration. We don't do this the way we should. You imagine getting done that kind of lengthy process in which Christ is operative. If it's done properly, Christ is operative at every point. And you end with the moderator saying, and now... Minister Timothy has the privilege of giving the benediction. And that's it. What a slap in the face of King Jesus. The Lord Jesus loves his church so much. He not only says, pray that the Lord of the harvest thrust forth laborers into the harvest field, but he forms them through his church Something like the way we've described these things. And when you get to the point that you can say, here's another answer to prayer, another example of Jesus adding laborers to the harvest, man, you better have a celebration. Because it's a beautiful evidence of what the church is all about. Jesus really is alive, and he really is at work. Okay, so that's it, folks. The making of a minister. Now the ball is in your court as you work with our own Timothy here, whose name is David, and as God willing, we work with many, many other men as the years go on. So let's pray together. Our wonderful God, thank you that we could take this time to just get a picture of the way men in the Orthodox Presbyterian churches and, frankly, in many other denominations, are externally recognized and confirmed for office. And regardless of how it's done, let these things be done in an orderly way. And we pray that there would be that sense that Christ by the Spirit is in back of all of these things so that while we are being the voice of Christ to recognize something, it is Christ himself who is at work in the someone so that we do recognize what is ultimately the grace of God in the great preacher Jesus, in whom we pray, amen.